Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is Professor Richard Wolff, author of a book, Understanding Marxism. And I wanna, I'd like to do a, a bit of a dive into it. Professor, welcome back. Um, help us understand Marxism. Well, you know, Marxism is, as it has done many times in the past, coming back into vogue. It's like you know, a movement from wide ties to narrow ties for men uh, in their formal uh, outfits. Uh, it has been declared dead uh, in innumerable times, and it has uh, become alive again to everyone's surprise or chagrin, depending on their point of view. Uh, the book I wrote was for a simple reason. We've been getting a rising number of emails. They're now coming in uh, hundreds and sometimes even thousands uh, in the passage of a month or two or three. Uh, and they basically are asking me lots of different questions, which, if you boil them down, are, what's this Marxism all about? And because it's the United States, uh, we have a problem. For the last 75 years, Marxism has been a kind of taboo, was associated with the Soviet Union, that was in turn considered to be a great enemy, and so everybody who was a good person or thought of themselves that way made sure to learn little or nothing about it. Uh, I remember being amazed as I went through college and graduate school on the way to my Ph.D. in economics that I was never assigned a word of Karl Marx in my program, and I have all those degrees. And that was not because it isn't relevant. It is. It's not because Marx wasn't a great thinker. He was. It's because people were afraid here in the United States. And for all the reasons you know as well as I, over the last eight or nine years, all that has changed. Changed in historical time, almost like in an instant. And suddenly people want to know, what is this all about? Capitalism doesn't seem to be working real well for a vast majority of our people, and it's absolutely no surprise that they should, as they think about it, turn to what is the most developed 
critical uh, analysis of capitalism around, and that's Karl Marx. And, and being interested in him doesn't mean you're some kind of robot follower, doesn't mean you do it in a dogmatic way, or none of that. Karl Marx made his share of mistakes like every other major writer. But he is and he remains the critical thinker who, who launched the project of criticizing as capitalism. And in that way, he's just as important as Adam Smith, uh, who was the great early thinker who celebrated capitalism. And if we weren't a frightened country, we would be as busy teaching the perspective on capitalism uh, espoused by folks who love it, as we would be teaching how to look at capitalism through the eyes of people who are critical of it, since, believe me, more than ever in American history, uh, those two numbers are getting closer and closer together. And so for me, it was a way to answer lots and lots of questions with one short and hopefully easily accessible book. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, Adam Smith in his, uh, uh, I thought it was kind of a critique of capitalism, theory of moral sentiments, uh, right. you know, is, is essentially arguing for regulated capitalism, saying this thing can go off the rails. Um, it, how, how does that compare with, or how would you summarize Marx, Karl Marx's analysis of capitalism? I think it was a very nuanced analysis. You know, he was very respectful of Adam Smith. Uh, there's a multi-volume work Marx produced. It's published as Theories of Surplus Value. And in that multi-volume work, an enormous number of pages, I don't know the exact number, but I remember 60, 70 pages of one of the volumes is devoted to a very positive appreciation of all that Marx learned from Adam Smith. And you're quite right. Smith was a very sophisticated thinker, too. And he had his critical moments. But the Adam Smith that has survived to our current time is the Adam Smith of the so-called invisible hand, which has been interpreted as this idea that somehow, magically, as if... God himself were guiding us, capitalism takes us to the absolute best economic system anybody could ever want, dream of, or imagine. And if you don't believe that, and I believe the majority of Americans don't believe that anymore, then you're going to start looking at the point of view of the critics, of whom there have been millions, but none has ever surpassed uh, the basic insights of, of Karl Marx. And I can summarize them really kind of quickly, that he, Marx, as a young man, was absolutely in love with the principles of both the American and French Revolution. The slogan of the French, liberty, equality, fraternity, and to which you add the American contribution, democracy. That was Karl Marx. He was a young man for whom this was the greatest thing he could think of. But he happened to be alive in the middle of the 19th century, and he looked around, and capitalism had indeed taken over. Feudalism was gone. But if you were looking for liberty, equality, and brotherhood and democracy, it wasn't there. And his project, as a man, as a thinker, as a writer, his project was to explain why not. Why did capitalism that promised to bring liberty, equality, fraternity, and democracy, whose leaders of the revolution that created capitalism promised those things and did so sincerely, Marx asked himself the question, why did it not work out? And his answer, 
And that's what he always wrote. That's what Das Kapital, his great book, is about. His answer was that capitalism contains within itself the barrier to reaching the slogans it supported and it endorsed when it was born. And he then said, I'm going to show you why. And now basically the answer. If you divide the work of producing goods and services into the following arrangement among people, that a tiny minority sitting at the top of every enterprise, every workplace, whether you call it the board of directors or the owner or the partners or whatever name you give them, if they have the position of telling everybody else what to do without being accountable to all those people, then you have banished democracy from the workplace and you have introduced a conflictual relationship between those who direct at the top, the minority, and those who do the bulk of the work, the majority. And that conflict is going to, in the end, undermine the system. The folks at the top are going to run businesses so they become richer and the mass of people don't. I give you the U.S. today. They're going to run it in such a way that they don't take into account the broader needs of the society. They're simply monomaniacally focused on the profit of their enterprise, and that's going to lead us into instability, business cycles, crashes, and all the other phenomena. And finally, they're not going to take into account the deeper personal, interpersonal, and relational needs of the majority because they don't give them a voice, and that's going to end up creating social conflicts and difficulties which sooner or later will bring the system down. And look, you know, did he make mistakes? For sure. Did he overlook things? No doubt. But that was a very profound analysis, which helps to explain why Marxism, starting in England, because that's where Marx lived most of his adult life, starting in England, has spread with capitalism so that people who find the Marxian critique persuasive are now active in every single country on the face of the earth. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say that the legalization and legal protection of labor unions, um, the provision for beneficent corporations like a number of states have done, um, worker-owned cooperatives, which are uh, encouraged in, I think there's uh, 17 states, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that, that have explicit laws to encourage this, right. um, other states that discourage it, but that these are all ways uh, consistent with Marx's analysis ways to modify capitalism so that it is less toxic, less destructive? Absolutely. And Marx, if you ever read the Communist Manifesto, which is not have you know, a major work of analysis, but it's yeah. still his work, that's how it ends. It ends with a list of demands that are not all that different from the demands you would get from Bernie Sanders. Professor Richard Wolf, democracyatwork.info is his website, and you can tweet him at Prof. Wolf. W-O-L-F-F. Wall Street's barons are causing homelessness. I did a deep dive into this yesterday afternoon. In fact, typically I'm done writing 
the next morning's the daily rant for HartmanReport.com before Rachel Maddow comes on the air. I, I get home around 1 and she comes on at 6 here Pacific time. But last night I was writing right into her show. I, I kept finding more and more and more stuff about how Wall Street's barons are causing homelessness. Can we stop them? This is just absolutely astonishing. Zillow, you know, the big national real estate listing company, Zillow.com is their website. Uh, they funded a, an in-depth research study into the relationship between housing prices and homelessness, which is remarkable and remarkably socially responsible. And what they found is that whenever the cost of houses exceeds 32% of the median income in a neighborhood, you start seeing a rapid explosion of homelessness. In other words, when houses become more than, begin to cost more than three times the average wage, then homelessness starts to stalk neighborhoods. The median American income right now is $35,805. 35000 say $36,000. So what they're saying is for the median neighborhood, if the house is costing more than three times that, which would be like, what, $100,000? Um, you're going to start seeing homelessness. And what we're finding for what the Fed says is that the median house right now is selling for $374,900. That was last year's numbers from the Fed. As Zillow reports, rent burden already exceeds the 32% of median income threshold in 100 of the 386 markets included in this analysis. I tell the story of my dad back in 1956, or 57, I guess it was. I was six years old. He got a VA loan, which again, we used to subsidize Americans buying homes. Now we're subsidizing giant corporations buying homes with tax breaks. But anyhow, he bought this house in, in South Lansing, Michigan for 13,000 bucks. Maybe it was 15, I'm pretty sure it was 13. Anyhow, it was in that neighborhood. And that was about twice what he made when he was working at, you know, a good union job at a tool and die shop. Uh, obviously the dollar was worth a lot more back in 1957, but um, back then the median price of the single family home was 2.2 times the median American family income. It was about twice what people earned. That was the, the cost. And that's why people were able to live and pay their rent and pay their mortgage and, and have food for their kids and, and even put their kids through college, um, which also wasn't very expensive then, and afford health insurance or afford medical expenses. Because housing didn't, you know, wasn't taking this giant bite out of us. Today, the Fed says the average, the median house is selling for $374,000. And we're seeing this in part because you know, there's more Americans and fewer houses. When my dad bought his house, there were 168 million people in the United States. Today, there's 330 million. And you know, it's true that you know, Reaganism has stopped the growth of wages while causing an explosion in the, in, the, in the growth of everything else. But the main thing that's driving this, it started with foreign investment. There was this big wave of foreign investment in US housing over, over the last 30 years, more or less. But the last decade has been a completely different thing. And, and, and it can track back to this study that Morgan Stanley did in 2011 that they published saying that basically this is the great new investment opportunity. Buy up all the available housing in a middle class neighborhood 
turn it all into rentals. So basically, if somebody wants to live there, if it's a neighborhood that's got good schools, that was the pr principal magnet. You got a neighborhood with good schools, buy up all the houses in that neighborhood, and then rent them out to people. So people can no longer buy the houses. And what this does is it drives up the housing prices. They tell the story, the, there was a Wall Street Journal article about this, meet your new landlord, Wall Street. They say, on the first Tuesday of every month in Atlanta, where the first Tuesday of every month is when they auction off homes that are in foreclosure, on the first Tuesday of each month, investors toted duffels stuffed with millions of dollars in cashier's checks made out in various denominations so they wouldn't have to interrupt their buying spree with trips to the bank. In uh, this one suburb of Nashville that they documented in the Wall Street Journal, the vice mayor, Bruce Hull, says before the big companies came in, you could rent a three-bedroom, two-bath house for 1000 bucks a month. The average rent now, as a consequence of, it, well, I just quote from the Wall Street Journal, quote, the average rent for 148 single-family homes in Spring Hill owned by the big four Wall Street investor landlords was about $1,773 a month. So rents have almost doubled. Ryan Desember just published this new book, Underwater, How Our American Dream of Homeownership Has Become a Nightmare. And he tells the story of, of home buyers, middle-class families who are trying to buy their first home, and they're going in and they're making offers on houses at asking price. You know, there's a house on the market for $150,000. They offer $150,000. And suddenly somebody comes in like minutes later and says, we'll make it $160,000 cash. And of course, the home buyers can't offer cash. They have to say, well, it's, you know, subject to approval of the bank and the bank won't approve it until there's an inspection. And so it's going to take a month. And, you know, home sellers would much rather have cash than wait a month. So anyhow, they note that this guy, uh, this one family, the Jacobs family, they were bewildered. They, they, they made an offer on a house. As I recall, it was around a $90,000 house. They made an offer on it at asking. And then the seller came back and said, well, somebody just offered $10,000 more. And so the Jacobs family upped their bid and instantly the other bidder. And finally, it just hit the point, oh, it passed through $100,000. It hit the point where the Jacobs family said, we can't afford it anymore. And they backed out. And they were trying to figure out who was this aggressive bidder. It turns out it was Blackstone Group, which is an almost $1 trillion investment fund run out of New York City. It's a Wall Street investor group. It's, in fact, it's the largest real estate investor in the world right now. And that week, they were buying, at that time, they were buying $150 million worth of American houses every week, trying to spend over $10 billion. In 2018, according to the Wall Street Journal, corporations bought one out of every 10 homes sold in America. Uh, Desimer, in his uh, book, he notes between 20, 2006 and 2016, when the home ownership rate fell to its lowest level in 50 years, the numbers of renters grew by about a quarter. And again, you go back to the study by Zillow. You know, what Zillow found was that Quote, communities where people spend more than 32% of their income on rent can expect a more rapid increase in homelessness, number one. Number two, income growth is not kept pace with rents, leading to an affordability crunch with cascading effects that for people on the bottom economic rung increases the risk of homelessness. And number three, the areas, I'm reading from the study, the areas that are most vulnerable to rising rents, unaffordability, and poverty hold 15% of the U.S. population and 47% of people experiencing homelessness. It's measurable, it's predictable, and it's destroying what's left of, of the American working class, particularly minorities, 
and creating an absolute screaming explosion in homelessness. And this also is locking middle class people out from being able to, to grow equity. Most of the wealth of most middle class families, it's true of me, I can, you know, it's probably true of most people, is their home, their equity in their home. That's their biggest pile of money. And it increases over time faster than any other investment you can make and relatively safely. But now you've got families who are being locked out of the market, locked out of the ability to buy a home, and then having to rent where you gain no equity over time, you don't gather wealth, and then the big corporations come in and start doubling the rents or increasing the rents, and pretty soon you've got this explosion of homelessness. When is America going to wake up? When are we going to do something about this? Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What can we do? Some countries like Malaysia have made it illegal for foreign buyers to own property in their countries. That deals with the foreign buyer problem, which was a, a large part of the increase in home prices over the last 20 years. But the last 10 or 11 years have seen this explosion in these giant Wall Street firms coming in and buying up houses. They gain this massive economy of scale you know, if they own, like in, in the Spring Hill neighborhood in, uh, in Nashville, these companies own 5% of all the houses. When they buy them, they go in and they, they put in their own appliances and their own refrigerators and washers. And, I mean, they're spending an average of $25,000 a house when they buy these houses. And that way, they have their own repair service, and it's the same parts for the same stuff for every house. 
they have their own local rental management company so that they've got you know a law firm and, and everything to to evict people and you know deal with renters and problems like that they've got economies of scale that no individual homeowner can compete with that airbnb can't compete with so do we ban corporations from owning houses or owning more than a certain number of houses or owning more than a certain percentage of houses in any given city i mean you can do that with zoning is that the first step or on the other hand do we flip it around and do like you know what happened in the 1950s when my dad bought his one and only house he, he bought it in 1957 and literally died in it he died in the living room of it i was sitting next to him in his living room as he died 2006 i mean years later right he bought that house with a va loan volunteered for the draft during world war ii and you know went off to japan and so he qualified for a veterans administration loan we were subsidizing middle income middle class people to buy houses do we go back to doing that do we start offering incentives to people uh, to to buy housing i think frankly regulating the market is a stronger way to do it right now because i mean you know by the point my dad made i remember the 1980s when during the reagan administration when when mortgage louise and i bought a house in atlanta during that time in, in uh, 81 or maybe 82 we were paying 13 percent that was the mortgage rate <laughs> my dad was telling me how the banks were calling him up and saying hey wouldn't you love to roll your loan over because he was paying 1.5 percent or something like that with this va loan and his house was almost completely paid off and they wanted to get him into one of these 18 or 13 percent you know mortgages but right now home mortgages are you know running two to three percent so i doubt that we could do much to help middle class people buy homes what we need to do is deal with the affordability of them which will cause you know if, if we were to say okay corporate you know giant corporations can't buy housing any longer in the united states or there's a limit on how much they can buy or if city after city starts adopting this you know, there, there is no progressive equivalent of ALEC, you know, that produces standardized legislation that everybody across the country can, you know, that every state can use. But if there were, that somebody, or if one city just does it, you know, Seattle or Portland or San Francisco or something, and just says, you know, we're going to cap how many, how many single, res, single, you know, single resident homes can be owned by other than human beings we're going to cap that if a city were to do that it would level off housing prices for a while it would stop the explosion of housing prices it might even cause a slight sag in the housing market for a short time the housing market will recover as wages go up but that would be a good thing i would think because it would mean that housing would start becoming affordable again so anyhow we've, we've uh, you know a lot of stuff uh, uh to talk about here Gordon in Naperville, Illinois. Hey, Gordon, what's on your mind today? I want to sort of tie together a couple of things that you've said here. A long time ago, you taught us that the Black Plague brought about the Renaissance and gave us trade unions. Yeah, ironically, so, yes. Because it, so it killed so many people and created a labor shortage, yes. Right. So what's happening now is that um, we're seeing that sort of in reverse. Uh, poverty is power to the rich and powerful, okay? Correct. So uh, this, this whole housing thing ties in with the abortion laws 
the abortion laws aren't about controlling women. That's more the excuse to get them passed. It's more about creating poverty. Well, that's the effect poverty that it has, is, or perpetuating poverty. Yeah, that's the effect per- of perpetuating of and creating laws. poverty, which, instead of moving money downward, moves money upward. Correct. Because poor people are always renting. More they don't, power. Right. And poor people are renting. They're not building equity. They don't own their properties. Yeah. Yeah, which you. gives the rich more power. The and same wealth, thing yes. with education. You keep people uneducated, they can't get the good jobs. It gives the rich people more power. It's all poverty is power to these people. Yeah, yeah. And so, so the why more would they in, you create? In other words, if if we were to say, okay, that's it, you can't continue to strip mine our neighborhoods, we're taking we're essentially taking away their profits and power. The effect of that would be to decrease poverty in America which they're going to fight because right because it poverty takes makes them away money. the power yeah it, i get you the the, get the you. plague moved money and power away from the nobility right now you're seeing whether you call it corporations or you know the uber wealthy or whatever yeah. you, they're taking their power back by creating and perpetuating and enforcing poverty. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. Gordon, that's a brilliant analysis. Thank you for the call. Uh, Angel in Los Angeles. Hey, Angel, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up? I believe there are many more countries that do disallow foreign ownership of their property. And I think France used to. I'm not sure what they do now. But I always thought America had until about 20 years ago. I was really shocked because it's the only rational way to run a country. You would think. You would think. I mean, you yeah. know, you've got billions and billions, hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, you know, going into housing as a way of wealthy people in other countries, particularly China. That seems to be the major source of it. Chinese billionaires yeah. parking their money in American real estate because it's a safe, long-term investment. Mm-hmm. It is going to go up over time. Angel, thank you for the call. Norma in Montgomery, Alabama. Hey, Norma, what's up? Well, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. We need to stop foreign investment groups from buying residential property at all. If they want to come over here, they can lease property for business, but they should never be allowed to buy residential property. The house across from me belongs to a guy, he says, call him Scott, and he says he's from Taiwan, he speaks Cantonese, and when he first bought that house from foreclosure, he said that he wanted to buy 52 so he would get a check every week and he wouldn't have to work. He has a corporation behind him in Taiwan. When he started gutting it, he knew nothing about code, and I had to get the board out here to stop him from what he was doing because he was throwing the plaster from 1948 into the backyard and the dust was flying everywhere. Oh, and it's got asbestos and in it. That's correct, and lead paint dust. Yep. And. I had to go over there time after time, and here he is speaking Cantonese, and his illegal help is Mexican speaking Spanish, and it's a dialect I don't speak. I don't know where he was from, but anyway, uh, trying to, I finally just started drawing diagrams and trying to teach him. But downtown, our only historic high-rise building built 100 years ago now belongs to Japan. All of these car companies have come into Alabama and bought land, and they have gotten it with the caveat of no property tax forever. Right. And this is hurting the economy. This has to stop. We need a federal law 
that no foreign investment group can buy a single square inch. One year, Saudi Arabia, about 10 years ago, bought 640,000-acre wheat field in Nebraska. They own most of the thoroughbred horse farms in Kentucky. They own farms in Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois, and Missouri for growing hay and alfalfa for the horses. As more and more land is sold to foreign investment groups or foreign rich people, there is less available for American citizens. Right, and those prices go up. Yes, and the prices go up. In fact, my son is trying to sell his house in Shelby County, north of Montgomery, up by Birmingham, and buy something closer down here to me because, you know, I'm 71. And we have spent five days out hunting, and there is not a single for sale sign. I myself have received probably two dozen phone calls over the past six months wanting people, people say, will you sell your house below market value? Will you sell your house at all? Mm-hmm. And I always tell them I'll take 500000 for it, even though it's not anywhere near worth that, mm-hmm. because it was built in 1952. My dad was also VA. He built the house that we lived in in 1955, and he built it for 16000 and now today the house... Uh, when I sold it, I sold it for 125000 Yeah, that's about that's what my dad's house is worth right now. Yes, and so as prices continue to go up, it prices the average guy out of ever being able to buy a house, and they pay rent forever. The house across the street is 900 a month. One down the street where the old lady died, that one's 1200 a month because it has a deck on the back and an extra bathroom. Yeah. But they keep doing this. They come in and they buy these houses up to where there's nothing left for regular guy. Regular Joe can't buy a house. Right, and then in cities you see this explosion in housing prices. I think the median home price in Portland now is in the neighborhood of a half million bucks. I mean, that's, I that's mind-boggling. And Los, Los Angeles belongs to China now. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Norma, thank you for the call. Thanks for all the detail. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Dennis in Aptos, California. Hey, Dennis, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Well, I'm just wondering if some of these buyers of all these homes, these Wall Street guys, if they're not doing things like Verbo and uh, Airbnb with their purchases. Uh, they're not. I mean, you know, a lot of... 
a lot of individual people do that who are nowhere near as billionaires, you know, right. just regular normal people. Right. But, uh, you know, they, I, I see, you know, this is just another way of getting in on the scam, turning it into a grift. And, you know, it, that's why I don't like, uh, and I, I've rarely ever taken an Uber or a Lyft, only with other people, not myself. Uh, you know, they're, they're grifts. That's how I see them. Well, what they did, what, um, what Uber did, is they, they offered transportation at below cost for about two years, uh, losing hundreds of millions of dollars in the process, perhaps billions of dollars, and drove all the taxis out of business. And then once the taxis were run out of business, I don't know if you noticed, but the cost of an Uber pretty yeah. much doubled You know, uh, over the course of about two years, as I recall. Uh, I, I just noticed it because I was using them a lot, because I was traveling a lot. And in many places, you can't even find cabs anymore. What's happening is that these companies, these giant investment companies, they'll go into a, into a community like the Spring Hill neighborhood in, uh, you know, this suburb in, in Nashville, and buy hundreds of homes. And then they've got an economy of scale. They don't need uh, Verbo or uh, Airbnb. They're, they're doing all the management themselves. They'll create a local mm -hmm. company. They'll hire a couple of local handymen. They go in and they remodel all these houses after they buy them. They put in identical appliances, identical everything in every house. And, the, and so the, the handy person, the, the, the fixer-uppers, um, all have, you know, everything is standardized. So, you know, when they go to fix a refrigerator, it's the same as the other hundred refrigerators. When they go to fix a stove, it's the same as the other hundred stoves. So they got, a few, you know, the parts, you know, in their, in their little mini warehouse. And then they've got, you know, a local, this local company that they own that is doing management of these houses that, you know, collects the rent and pays the bills and, and deals with complaints. And, and, they, and they can also buy insurance in, en masse. You know, they, they, instead of buying mm. insurance for one house, they're buying insurance for, you know, 5,000, 10,000 houses at a time. And so they're getting insanely low deals. And these are things that there's no possibility of a homeowner to compete with. It's just impossible. So that's, well, that's yeah, how it's sure. What's happened is Airbnb and Verbo are pretty much just, you know, what's left over for people who are who own a second home and, and you know, want to make some money off it. You know, I have no problem with that. I, I just had to wonder, though, that if that's one of the factors, why would you want to buy a bunch of houses? Because then you can turn around and you don't even have to have anybody living there for, you know, uh, six months or a year or so. You just rent those places out on a big holiday no, they're, weekend. They're doing it for two reasons. Two they're doing times the money. They're doing it for the, the same reasons that it works for the middle class. Number one, you have, you know, a regular income from it. For the middle class, it means you don't have to pay rent. You're, you're paying a mortgage instead. Mm -hmm. And number two, that income is also, a chunk of that income is going into equity. You know, it's, it's, it is for the middle class. For these companies, they, they own these houses outright. They pay cash for them. For the middle class, this is how you this is how we grow wealth. Nancy in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. Hey Nancy, what's on your mind today? In Royal Oak, Michigan, and I live in Oakland County, their tax on non-owner occupied houses is 17 mills higher than if you live in the house. Oh, that's interesting. So 17 that's gonna, uh, point, 17 mills. 0.17%. Yeah. So that drives up the rent, number one. And, of course, the government likes collecting this extra money. Mm -hmm. And what I've seen in Royal Oak is some really hideous apartment buildings, structures going up, you know, 20 feet from the curb and out on a busy street and very undesirable new construction. But my second point is um, that we have a housing shortage. 
And the answer is to put up more affordable single-family homes. Agreed. And I've spoke to our governor, government officials about it and heard how difficult it is. And, of course, it takes some federal money. But the way to cure a shortage in a competitive uh, capitalist society is bring more into the market. That will drive down prices. And these uh, guys that are paying the extra 17 mils, you know, they may feel some pain because that's what drives down prices Mm -hmm. is competition, more housing. And the way we do that is eminent domain. We have a lot of non-performing real estate in all of these cities. And that was the just that was the gist of the Supreme Court argument that caused David Souter to resign from the Supreme Court was when the Supreme Court ruled that a city can use eminent domain to to take uh, in this case, it was commercial uh, property, but presumably it would apply to residential as well to take it away from Corporation A and give it to Corporation B because Corporation B was going to run it better in a, and in a way that would uh, generate more tax revenue for the city. So, uh, you know, they. Well, I'm bought, talking about the public good. No, I agree. And they can take the power of the public po- good. Yeah, and the, and, the, and the Supreme Court in that decision expanded the power of eminent domain to do that. I mean, that, that public good was the whole rationale for the decision. I'm sorry I'm not remembering the name of the decision, but uh, I remember when it happened. Uh, Nancy, thank you. I, I, I'm with you. And I didn't know about the 17 mils in, in um, uh, you know, that's, that's real interesting. Um, that would be one way to do it, would be not just with zoning, but also through taxation. Uh, because there, there has to be a point at which the, the big corporations say, wait a minute, we've got to pay an additional 10% in property taxes? Nah, we, we just won't come into this community. Joel in Portland. Hey, Joel, what's on your mind today? You know, there's actually something I've been thinking about for about the uh, past week or so. I had a conversation with a friend about cryptocurrency, and I asked the question of, well, what's it based on? Uh, if it's a, he was kind of posing it as a parallel economic system. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it got me thinking, what's the dollar based on? You know, it used to be based on gold. And what I've always heard, this is armchair economist, total layperson here speaking. What I've always heard is it's, well, it's based on consumer confidence. And the more I thought about it, it made me think, actually, no, it's based on labor. And specifically, the prop, most of the profits could be considered stolen labor. Um, and I just wanted to see what your take on this is. And uh, maybe next time you talk to, um, I think it's Dr. Richard, Richard Wolf, Wolf yeah. you could uh, pose this question to him. I didn't seem to. That's I mean, a great I don't question, know if he takes question, Joel. My understanding is that the, that the dollar is basically based on what's referred to as the full faith and credit of the United States. Um, in other words, based on kind of the asset base of our nation, based on our, okay. our you know, um, and, and, and the government's ability to mobilize that uh, and, okay. and regulated by the Federal Reserve. But, uh, and, and what might be an alternative to that is a good question. In terms of, uh, you know, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, they seem, from where I'm sitting, to be based on energy consumption. Um, yeah, and, thought, and as computers get more and more efficient at, at using energy to create, to mine Bitcoin by running mathematical, you know, guesses, basically, um, then Bitcoin would, you would think, over time, get become less valuable or, you know, represent a smaller energy load. But in fact, it's uh, gotten more valuable, which tells me that Bitcoin, it were in a South Sea tulip uh, or South Sea uh, bubble or the or the Dutch tulip bubble. 
um, the kind of thing where you've got a commodity, in this case Bitcoin, that is uh, being priced way out of proportion to its actual value. But, That's kind of what I felt too. Yeah, yeah. but the but um, the, these are good questions for Richard Wolf. I think Sean is writing them down right now. So one quick one quick aside to this is a uh, one way to think about this is too like what happened to the value of the dollar and you know what. I actually don't know. I'm just totally speculating here. I feel like the value of the dollar cratered during the pandemic when there was a labor stoppage. Uh, so, no, I think the dollar actually got stronger. It did get stronger. Okay, so maybe yeah. there's there proves my but point. It, but it didn't. It didn't get stronger by a, a substantial amount. I mean, the, the, the yeah. and and we define strong as relative to other currencies, right? You know, relative to the yen, relative to the euro, relative to the ruble mm -hmm. or the the yuan. It's all uh, relative. So. Uh, anyway, okay. thank you very much. I got I got to run here, Joel. Thank you, Kurt in Akron, Ohio. Hey, Kurt, you've got a home equity story. My wife and I were living in a condominium next door to my mother-in-law with a fully paid condo. My wife had paid it off when her father passed away in September of 2001, so we didn't have a condo or a homeowner fee or a mortgage or anything. We were basically paying a homeowners association. We decided to look at buying a house. Mm -hmm. So we were looking around, and the only thing that we could find that was affordable for us was a house in the Firestone Park area, which is a neighborhood in Akron. Harvey Firestone, who started the Firestone Tire Company, used to build homes for his employees so they'd be within walking distance of their workplace. Huh. So um, it used to be a company town. Right. Absolutely. So, and interesting too is some of those houses were Sears houses, meaning you had the kits brought in by train from New York to Akron, and they were built by kits. But unfortunately, mine's not one of those. Yeah. Sears homes were also be worth a lot more money. We paid ninety five thousand dollars for that house in July of two thousand seventeen. Mm -hmm. So, where we live was very affordable. Mm -hmm. I remember our mortgage started out at seven hundred and twelve dollars a month. That included the home or the house payment the property taxes, and the homeowner's insurance. Right. So the point last of this story, fall, Kurt, can you get to it? Okay, I'm sorry. But I was just going to say, last fall, we were able to refinance our mortgage, so it went from 712 down to 534 a month. Mm -hmm. And what I found out was, over the period of July 2017 to December 2020, we had built up $40,000 in equity for our home. In three years. That's what I'm getting at. Wow. And, and I mean, it's, a, it's not a big house. It's 11. Well, it's almost doubling the price of the house, or, or it's almost half again. I mean, if you bought it for 95000 and it's now worth 135000 that's, as a percentage, um, an amazing amount of appreciation. Exactly. And from what I understand is from neighbors who I've talked to who have lived in that neighborhood for 100 years, basically, I'm exaggerating the time frame, yeah. hot commodity homes in that neighborhood are two-story, three-bedroom houses, which is what we live in as a two-story, three-bedroom house, where footage is like 1,188 square feet. And I'm looking right here, my property taxes just for last year was $1,904. Mm -hmm. for the whole year. Wow. So, That's pretty so cool. other than Chicago, I mean, if you take Chicago out of the mix, the Midwest is a very affordable place to live. Yeah, it is. And, and I think that's in part because the larger the city, the more likely these institutional investors are moving in and scooping up properties and just driving housing prices through the absolute screaming roof. 
Kurt, thanks a lot for the call and thanks for the story. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's symptomatic of what's going on. Mark in Atwood, Kansas. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today? Thanks for listening to us on SiriusXM. Yeah, Tom, I was just going back to what you're talking about, foreign investments. And I yeah. have a different perspective in an agricultural central economy here in Kansas. Uh, we were actually doing a highway job in southwest Kansas and came across uh, 32 consecutive sections of farm ground that had been purchased by a Ru- Russian investment company. Huh. And they had purchased the, gr- the ground at 16 to $1,700 per acre higher than the average for that area. Mm-hmm. So the price of that ground, what they purchased was roughly $38 billion. And it is dr- driving out smaller families farms who simply can't afford to finance at that purchase rate. Right, and that's contributed to Kansas' homelessness and poverty rate. This is the exact same well. thing that's happening in cities. As, as they go in and they buy up houses over market price, you know, they'll just outbid anybody. They pay over market price. That becomes the new kind of baseline value of those homes for tax purposes and also for sale purposes. And that, you know, it's basically inflation of home prices, rapid in- inflation of home prices, and that's driving homelessness. You're saying the same thing is happening with agricultural land. That's that's incredible. The caller just dropped. Uh, that that's, yeah, amazing. Dan in Altoona, Pennsylvania. Hey, Dan, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Uh, going on uh, the same lines as the last caller. It's a lot bigger than just Wall Street. Um, like I told Joyce, um, my parents live in a nicer neighborhood in Pennsylvania, and I think it was. Oh, it had to be about six or seven years now. There was a uh, Chinese defense contractor that bought a bunch of land behind my parents, and they built three huge mansions there, three of them. Hmm. And they only live in one. Mm -hmm. The other two, no one lives there. It's just kind of being circulated for money purposes. But the problem is, one, the Chinese defense contractor Two, it's boosting the price of property value in my mom and dad's neighborhood. So their property taxes went up $10,000, I think, over the last five or six years. Yep, just because these mansions were built. And it's a big problem because my uh, little brother and I were looking to move back into the neighborhood around our parents, but we can't even get close to, you know, affording any of the housing there now. Right, and it's just uh, it's a big it's a big issue. <laughs> you just can't believe Chinese defense contractors are the ones that bought that property. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you know, what's the old saying? There ought to be a law. Yeah, I get it. Dan, thank you. Thank you for sharing that story. That's uh, amazing. Susan in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Susan, what's on your mind? Yeah. Well, I was just going to mention as you're looking as they're looking for ways to control these, especially these international buyers. But um, I remember when I was uh, young, in the 50s, we used to rent a cottage in Canada, and it was from friends who were American. And I remember them having a discussion that the Canadians just changed their laws. And any American that owned property, you know, United States citizen, who owned property in Canada could not sell to another American. They had to sell to a Canadian. And I believe there was something else attached to it where and they could, their family could not inherit the property either. 
Mm -hmm. So that meant that they better sell it before they died. And I remember at that time he was discussing how he was going to sell the property. So I'm not. I thought that might be something they could should think about. What do they do with this property once they have it? Yeah, you know, That's and there an might be uh, some laws or regulations put on that. That's yeah, I mean, all I these things are subject to, to either you know zoning laws or the or their equivalent, you know, at a, at a state level, or or tax policy, right? You know, it's a, yeah. a, 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 a an American who is living in the house and who you know is that is their residence. The tax that they would pay, or even the property tax, would be different than if it's foreign owned. I mean, these there are solutions to this. Susan, thank you. That, that's a great idea. Rudy in Bullhead City, Arizona. Hey, Rudy, what's on your mind? First of all, I love you. I love you, Tom. Thank you. We need you. Out here in Arizona, a couple of counties over, someone from Arabia, Saudi Arabia, they bought up the four largest farms that grew alfalfa. Mm -hmm. And they uh, put in this multi-million dollar pumping system to go down to the aquifer far farther than than, uh, regular people can to get the water, to pump the water, to make alfalfa, to ship to Saudi Arabia, to feed the horses. Wow. Isn't that some? So they're strip mining. So Saudis are yes. strip mining Arizona of its water, which Arizona desperately needs, in order to feed well, horses. They also yeah. own a lot of horse farms in Kentucky and Tennessee, you know, and in, in the, in, in the Midwest. I mean, it may be for them, too. But that 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 is amazing, Rudy. It's it's just it's just amazing. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Rudy, for that anecdote. Mike in Detroit, Michigan. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? Oh, Tom, there's a number of things I can go on with you about. But uh, all right. Well, first, uh, let me just say real quick. Yeah, what you were talking about with the one gentleman there, uh, the unequal justice and all that. I mean, you talked about uh, the Trump crime family. Well, that that could apply to the Biden family too. I don't think but so. Now I wanted. To yeah, you look at Hunter's laptop and all that stuff. That's yeah, I, I haven't seen any about. real smoking guns here. I, you know, I think it looks bad, uh, you know, uh, Hunter those, getting those, anything, but uh, I haven't seen any real smoking guns. And you can bet, Mike, if there was an actual smoking gun, every American would know it because the Republican Party would make sure that you knew all the details. And they're not. And they're not. Well, they got nothing. And they're reporting it, but the, the main press isn't. No, they're just, they're just, but, uh, you know, the, the reporting on the right about Hunter's laptop and Hunter Biden has just been hysterical or, uh, uh, you know, uh, oh my God, he was using drugs and he was with a hooker. Well, yeah, he was using drugs and he was with a hooker. The guy's a mess. What does that have to do with his dad? No, it's the ties that he has to the uh, foreign com- or countries. Yeah. And a lot of people he, I know. He took advantage of his, of his dad's position, he exploited his father. Uh, you know, I've not and seen any evidence that his father condoned that or set that up. And if he okay, did, well, you know, he deserves to be condemned it. for it. But, you know, I, I, there's no evidence of any crimes there at all, Mike. And, and on the other hand, with Trump, I mean, you can look at, at all the times that Ivanka, for example, and Eric were committing fraud to sell real estate or to sell condos. You know, the, the, it, it's just there's just all kinds of crimes just laying around on the ground. But anyhow, you, that's not the point you were trying to make, Mike. You were going someplace else. Right, right. Yeah, that, that's, that's all debatable. But, uh, yeah, okay, now you're talking about uh, in this uh, human infrastructure bill or whatever you want to call it. Sure. Uh, the safety nets. Mm-hmm. You know, and the way you describe that, okay, safety nets. Isn't that what they're supposed to be, a safety nets? The problem is, is when you start a safety net, it's a permanent thing, and people stay on it and never get off of it. So how do you, you know, 
it's I get your I get your critique, Mike. It's the it's the classic Republican critique of the safety net. And and let me just flip it upside down. The need for ongoing welfare for people is an indication that the conservatives have established a a uh, an economy that doesn't work for most people. Well, right. If if you had well-paying jobs, you wouldn't have people needing food stamps. Well, now, wages are definitely going up with this. Not but enough. Now, there was something else that I talked to you about a while ago, and that's, uh, yeah, they, they say they want to tax the rich. I don't hear any talk yet, still, about changing the tax code. Yeah, and that's, like, and that's, that's uh, where we, that's where we need. Yeah, and this is where we really need to focus. I mean, you, you talk about welfare. The biggest welfare recipient in the United States right now is Jeff Bezos. The second largest yeah. welfare recipient in the United States is probably ExxonMobil. Uh, you know, I mean, the, these these companies are, they, you know, Walmart, you know, they come into a community and they say, we're going to destroy all your local businesses. By the way, give us land tax free. And, and it's yeah. like, you know, the, 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 the oil companies and the gas companies and Joe Manchin's coal company in, in uh, West Virginia, they're all they're all in welfare. They're getting massive multi-billion dollar subsidies. All the welfare that poor people in the United States are getting all together combined is a tiny drop in the bucket just compared to the welfare just that the oil industry is getting or just that Joe Manchin's coal industry is getting. So, yeah, I'm well, with you, Mike. It's time, it's time to change our, our tax code and get, get, the, get the tax cheats off welfare and, and, and create a social safety net that actually does work for people. And, and, and I'd, I'd say there's two levels to that, Mike. One level is. How come they're not proposing anything? Then? Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think, think they I are. Elizabeth Warren, you know, the whole, the whole, the whole way Warren, that they were proposing to pay for the Build Back Better plan was by raising taxes on rich people and closing loopholes. So they are, Mike. They absolutely are. But to the point that I was trying to make just a moment ago, there are two kinds of social safety net. And, and I think, Mike, you know, thank you for your question because it really helps highlight this. And I, I want to speak to this. There are two issues here, and we need to separate them. We need to disentangle them. And the Republicans have done a good job of conflating them, of mixing them together. And, and Joe Manchin is, too. And those two things are, number one, what do you do for people when they fall? How do you catch them when they fall? That's a, that's a small number of people. What do you do with people when they, when they lose their job? What do you do with people when they're, when they're diagnosed with a fatal illness or something like this and they can no longer work? How do we deal with people who are disabled? How do we, you know, somebody gets in a car accident or born disabled for that matter, but, you know, somebody particularly during their productive lifespan, suddenly they can't work anymore. How do we provide for them? That's one question. How do we catch people when they fall? The other question, which Republicans constantly trying to mix these two together, the other question is, what should be the rights of citizenship in the United States? Should people have a right to health care at no or little cost in the United States, like they do in England, like they do in Canada, like they do in Australia, like they do in France, like they do in Germany, like they do in, in, in uh, Norway, like they do in Denmark, like they do it. I mean, I, I could go through, I probably can't remember all the names of the 30, what is it, 36 European Union countries like they do in Taiwan, like they do in South Korea. Should we have, should every, as a right of citizenship, should every American have access to basically free health care? Number one. Number two, as a right of citizenship, should every American have access 
to free college education and trade school. The ability to better themselves and to improve their skill sets so that they can participate in the economy. And then in the context of those two things, and I'm just picking two, there are a few others that we could talk about, you know, a right to housing, a right to a job, a right to, you know, if, I mean, there's a bunch of them, but, but those two primary focused things. Then, then you ask the, the third question, which is, why would society not want to provide those things? And the answer to that is basically because somebody can make money on them and they are preventing people from getting them. You've got big banks that are holding one and a half trillion dollars in student debt and making a frigging fortune on it, hundreds of billions of dollars a year in interest. They don't want free college. And you've got big insurance companies who are literally making a billion dollars a week in profit across the industry who don't want everybody to have free health health, access to health care. It's just that simple. So then you ask the other question, well, if we did do these two things, gave everybody free education and did, gave everybody free health care, like they do in Canada, like they do in England, like they do in France, like they do in Germany, like they do in all these, in South Korea, Taiwan, Australia, if we did that, what would the impact on our society be? Would it suddenly create a huge uh, class of lazy people who don't want to work anymore, like you know the, the right-wing billionaires will tell you? as they're giving free money to their children? Or would it energize our society? Would it revive our society? Would it be the thing that makes things work in our society again? If no longer did you have a trillion and a half dollars worth of debt on the backs of millions of young people in student debt, if no longer did you have a half a million families going bankrupt and, and, and becoming homeless because somebody in their family got sick, these things are drags on our economy. Young people are not starting homes or buying homes. They're not starting families. They're not getting married. They're not, they're, uh, people who want to become entrepreneurs are not jumping into starting small businesses because they're afraid of losing their health insurance or because they owe $100,000 on their student loans. Now, these, in my opinion, are not social safety net issues. These are you know, because it's not catching people when they fall. These are investments you make in your society so it works better. Straightforward, that's it, and that's what we should be doing. Now, I get it. Conservatives like Joe Manchin and the entire Republican Party think, well, if you do those things, then your insurance companies and your banks are going to lose some of their profit. And they are big donors to the Republican Party presumably to conservatives in the Democratic Party. But I don't hear any other argument beyond that, frankly. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.